This is God's infallible and errant word. Mark chapter 6, verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained, would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. They defile a person. Defilement, we don't really use that word anymore, do we? I mean, to defile something is to make it like dirty, like to ruin it. When you get something gross on your hands, you just wanna go wash it off. You feel defiled, you feel icky. So you scrub, 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 you know? Uh, Defilement can be mental too, can't it? When we witness certain disturbing behaviors or, or we hear things said, we just wish we could erase and scrub our minds and just get that ick off our brain. That's defilement. Uh, This story from Mark is all about defilement. Jesus gets fired up about it too. As usual, he is mad at the religious leaders of the day. And why? Because the religious leaders and people viewed others in society as defiled, as icky. Like even going to the marketplace, whenever you got back home, you had to scrub, scrub, scrub to be cleansed from just being in their presence. And this makes Jesus really mad. Why? Because it shows them all to be a bunch of hypocrites. See, they love to point the finger out there, but they aren't brave enough to point the finger at themselves, at their own hearts. Jesus says that it is their own hearts that defile them. So let us see if we, this morning, are brave enough to listen to what Jesus has to say. Because, spoiler, like religious or not, we can all be just a bunch of hypocrites. Now, we're going to study the flow of this text in three parts. First, we're going to see that defilement, uh, we want to see defilement as coming from the outside. That'll be the first couple paragraphs. And then second, Jesus says the defilement comes from inside. And then third, we'll see that Jesus doesn't just rebuke. He doesn't just uh, show us how bad we are or something. No, he actually offers us a solution. The third point is Jesus wants to cleanse us. So let's jump in. Part one, we want to see defilement as coming from outside. We will be looking at the controversy of Jesus' disciples when they don't wash their hands after being in the market. Um, So look at verse 53. This is the setting. They land their boat in Gennesaret. Now, in Mark's gospel, we've been bouncing all around the Sea of Galilee, so I don't expect any of us. I have a hard time keeping track of uh, all these different place names. You've got the the Gerasenes, the Gadarenes, Gennesaret. So Gennesaret, it's this place on the northernmost shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's between like Bethsaida and Capernaum. These are the places where Jesus did all of his early ministry. All those miracles, all those uh, teachings that got people's attention. And that is why everybody recognizes him in verse 54. They remember him healing people. They remember that woman who had that flow of blood for 12 years and she reached out and she touched him and she was healed. So in light of all that, uh, verse 56, they're bringing everybody who's sick and bringing them to go see Jesus. Now, I want us to to take this image 
of these sick people in this crowd gathering around Jesus. And I want us to burn this into our minds. Imagine these people, some of them with, with terrible disfigurements, diseases, sick, just, just, just really, really sick and pitiful. Some of them covered in flies. Some of them blind. And they're groping out. And they're reaching through the crowds in the market just to touch Jesus. And they are made well. So hold on to this image. Because that, that's going to be the answer for everything this morning. Then comes the controversy. Rumor has it that Jesus and his disciples, they aren't washing their hands after they come back from market. So COVID has really put us in a, in a hand-washing mindset. We are really into the habit of it. And the Jews of Jesus' day, at least the Pharisees and, and a lot of the elders, they were really into hand-washing too. Look at verse 3. Washing up before you ate was a tradition of the elders. That's what the text says, a tradition of the elders. And why was it a tradition? Well, it, they weren't washing for the same reasons we wash. Now, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these fishermen around the Sea of Galilee, they wanted to wash all that fish slime off their hands before they ate. Uh, but they weren't concerned about germs. They were more concerned with a ritualistic view of purity. Where'd they get this idea? Well, it's a tradition of the elders. Where'd this come from? Well, back in the Old Testament, whenever God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them the law, the Torah. And this Torah was broken up into a few parts. It was laws that had to do with civil government. There were laws that had to do with morality. Like think the Ten Commandments, you know, don't lie, steal, cheat, kill people, don't worship other gods. Like those are moral truths. You know, for all of time, for all people. And then there was the ceremonial law. Now, this is the law that a lot of people like to, you know, make fun of today. The ceremonial law, it was all the little ways that God wanted Israel to look different from the nations around them. Tassels on their garments. Not moral. It was just a way for them to look distinct from the nations. No mixed fabric clothing. Not a moral thing, just a way for them to look different from the nations. Not eating pork. Not because it's unhealthy or something. Not for any moral reasons. It was so they would be distinct from the nations around them. See, God wanted his people to be marked and set aside as holy. Distinct from other nations. God's family. And part of that ceremonial law was washing. Now, not the washing that they developed this tradition around. No, see, priests, whenever they were in the temple or the tabernacle, they were supposed to wash their hands and wash their feet before they did a sacrifice. Also, regular people were supposed to wash up if they had a bodily discharge. And uh, my, my favorite is if there was like a random dead body found around the city, all the elders would go, they'd do, sacrifice an animal, and then they'd wash their hands. And, and this washing, all of these washings, they symbolized the people's desire to be clean, to be cleansed from sin in the presence of God. Washing was a symbol. Cleansed from sin. Cleansed from the influence of other nations around them who did not worship the true God. It was a symbol. It was a ceremony. It was something to point to the cleansing of their consciences. 
So fast forward a number of centuries in Israel's history, and Israel goes into captivity among the nations. Why? Because they sin. They sin really bad. They don't repent, and they're cast among the nations. Eventually, they make their way home, and they say, man, never want to do that again. So how can we keep from going back into exile? So some of these groups that return, they start developing these safeguards, these extra rules to, uh, to, to keep them from uh, being spiritually defiled. They go beyond what was written in the Torah, and they come up with these little checklists of things to do to make sure you never break a commandment to make sure you are being a good little Israelite. And hey, if it was good for the priests to wash their hands, well then we better all do it, lest we fall again into spiritual defilement, have to pack up our bags and get exiled. See, the ceremonial law, it was like a picket fence around a house. You know, like one of those nice little waist-high fences. It's more there for decoration. It's more like a symbol. They might keep your toddlers in or your dogs in, but for the most part, it just says, look, this is our little plot of land for our family. We have our little rules here. The things just don't run freely. Our kids don't run out in the street. But look, isn't it nice? You know, come over, have a a cup of tea. That's what that fence symbolized. And it's as if the Pharisees took that picket fence and then they made this big stone wall. And they said, ah, you know what? We can do better than that picket fence. Let us make a stone wall 10 feet high, a wall that will keep us safe from everything bad that is out there somewhere. Everyone needs to wash their hands when they come back from the market. And not just that, look at verse four. They're scrubbing their cups, pots. They're scrubbing their couches that they sit on. Like they scrub. But they miss the heart of the law. They miss the main point of it. Remember, it was all those washings that were to symbolize our need to be cleansed from our own sin. But the Pharisees wanted to say that sin and defilement was something out there, not in here. Side note, the name Pharisee, uh, it it comes from the the word to to separate. The Pharisees saw themselves superior to other people because they were separated from them by this big stone wall. We love doing the same thing. We want to externalize defilement as well. From the comfort of our couches, um, we we will point our finger in outrage at Hockey Canada as abuse reports surface about what's going on. We will point our finger. We will point our finger at organizational leaders that groom and manipulate their staff. We will point the finger. We will point our fingers at boomers or millennials or Gen Z for all the ways that they just get it wrong. We peer over our stone walls, we point our fingers, and then we wash our hands. Why? Because as long as the defilement and wrong stuff is out there, we feel safe inside. We feel clean. This brings us to part two. Jesus says that the defilement, it's not out there. It's internal. It's in here. The rest of the text that we have this morning is Jesus' scathing rebuke. He is very upset with the people. Look at verse six. What does he call them? He calls them hypocrites. 
Because this teaching that they're putting forth, it's so contradictory to the law itself. So he starts this rebuke by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which we read earlier in a bigger section. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah was talking about the religious leaders of his day who had become blind to their own sinfulness. And from this, the worship of God had become meaningless. Look, as soon as religion just becomes some external rite that you do, what's the point? It's just empty repetition. So then Isaiah's prophecy continues, and it says, and this is very important, it says, one day God will put an end to this vain worship. And he will open the eyes of those people who have been kept blind, kept in darkness. And they will see reality for the first time. And when they see reality for the first time, this is very important, they will know that God is a God who saves the meek and lowly. Saves the downcast, the ashamed, the dirty. He's a God who saves the defiled. You distract people from that with all these washings and you will make Jesus very angry. So then Jesus moves from Isaiah's passage to this whole Korban thing that we uh, find in verses 9 to 13. So this is Jesus entering into teacher mode with the Pharisees. And he's doing this in order to poke holes in their reasoning. He's, He's knocking down their stone wall, and he's doing it by showing how inconsistent it is. So here's the case study. Vows, Korban vows. Jesus uh, he, he's showing that, that they, they've thought vows through really hard, but they've, they've missed the, the main point of the law. And so he gives them an example of a man who takes a vow and then regrets it once he realizes that it was foolish. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to them, You say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban. Let's, let's pause there. Korban. It means something that's offered up specially to God. Like if I said that my car was Corban, it would mean that I couldn't use it for normal purposes or I probably couldn't let you borrow it. I could only maybe use it to drive people to church or maybe just to take road trips for the sake of my soul or something. That would be like what it was to offer up something as Corban. It comes from the idea that you're just giving over part of yourself that you would normally just have in the normal common public life, and you give it over to the special purpose, an offering to God. So this hypothetical man that Jesus is talking about, he makes a vow to offer up the duties that he owes his parents. Maybe this is time, maybe this is money, or a room in his house when they get old, or or maybe this is just his Thursday afternoons carrying in groceries from the market. Whatever it is, he vowed that duty as Corban to the Lord. And verse 12, the scribes and Pharisees taught that this vow must be upheld. He couldn't help his parents. Yeah, the the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Well, but not if you make a vow not to. And, And it's in this point that the Pharisees are proving their inconsistency. Because they claim to teach the law, but only in ways that seem doable. It's much easier to tell somebody to keep a vow, to, to, to whatever little vow they do, if it's a simple vow, than to honor their parents. I mean, that's a whole can of worms you open up. 
But the, the raison d'etre of the law was to teach us how to love God and how to love people. And they're tossing that aside because keeping a vow like this is much more doable. That's why Jesus says in verse 9 that they're rejecting the commandments of God. And in verse 13, they're making his word void, meaningless. It's because they've latched on to this simple little idea that is something they control. If you make a vow, keep it. It's, it's that simple. The church today needs to take heed to this passage. Our denomination recently formed a committee to study abuse. And we elders have been working through the document that they have provided. And man, I tell you, it has been fueling my nightmares. One thing from that report, though, it sounds eerily familiar to today's text. See, often in many churches, the abused, uh, if, if there's a case of, of spousal abuse, the abused spouse has been counseled by their pastor to stay in the marriage to the abuser. After all, marriage vows are important, aren't they? Vows, vows, vows. The abused are told to go home and face hell itself, physically, spiritually, sexually, emotionally. I think Jesus is outraged. This is a great inconsistency. Not to say vows mean nothing, vows mean everything. But abusers are the ones who break those vows. So let us be very careful how we counsel, counsel those who are hurting. Let us not fall into the same inconsistency. But look, remember that Jesus is just using this as an example of the inconsistencies in their system of externalizing what is wrong in the world. So let us not be guilty of the same thing by saying, oh yeah, those bad church leaders, they're, they're really bad, aren't they? Because we're just as inconsistent. We champion social causes. Yet we neglect our own family, our parents. They need us too. We love to say that so-and-so is so toxic, or our boss is so toxic. Toxic, that's just a fancy word for defilement. We say we need to cut people out of our lives and put them on the other side of a big stone wall. And look, some of you have gone through real manipulation and real abuse. That is a, a whole nother situation. There should be some distance there. But look, for many of us, we are way too quick to offer, offer up our lives as korban and neglect our duties to family and society. Next, Jesus brings us to the real issue, the heart. Verse 14. He calls everyone together again. In verse 15, he says this, and let us burn this into our hearts as well. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Essentially, we're part of the problem, folks. It's like when you're in traffic and you're complaining about all the traffic out there. You know, the only time you complain about traffic is when you are part of traffic, like you're part of the problem. So after Jesus says this, his disciples ask him about what this really means. In verse 18, he tells them, it's not what goes into you. It's not what comes from outside that defiles you. No, it's, it, you, look, we eat food and food goes out the other end. 
So verse 21, what defiles you is your heart. Let us stop here. Okay, let's pull it together. Are we brave enough to listen to Jesus when he tells us this? Because I want to shut him out. I want to distract myself from this truth, but it's true. My evil thoughts that I, Frankie, have, Frankie, a pastor at this church, have my evil thoughts, those aren't from out there. Those are mine, from my heart. My inappropriate desires, those are mine, from my heart. Your desire to hide the truth, that's yours. That's from your heart. Your desire to talk bad about people, that's not from them. That's not their fault. That's yours. That's from your heart. Our pride, that's ours from our heart. Our foolishness, that's ours from our heart. We look at the mess of our lives and we so desperately, we want to point the finger out there. But when we do that, we lock ourselves inside these big stone walls. But look, friends, we are not alone inside these walls. There is a wicked, defiled heart lurking in the shadows. Society will not tell us that. Sweet grandmothers will not tell us that. But Jesus tells us that. Jesus tells us the truth. And we will hate him for it unless we know why he does it. He says it because he's not afraid of it like we are. Last week I was in the church office and all of a sudden the whole place began to fill with the most putrid foul-smelling sewer gas you could imagine. I've never experienced something like this. It was just wretched, like the, the scent thick. Uh, the plants were, were starting to droop, and well, the paint was peeling off the walls. I felt defiled. Like my eyes were burning. It was horrible, friends. What had happened was there was like this drainage pipe in the floor, and, and in a drainage pipe, there's like this little U-bend, and there's water there that keeps all that sewer gas from like coming out and into my eyes and nose. And, and that little water thing had dried up and, and so it just released you know what lies beneath horrible I had to flee I couldn't stand being there uh, and and I tell you this first so you have sympathy on me um, second because that's what it's like when we began to see the defilement or begin to see the defilement of our own hearts it, it's terrifying we just want to run away that's why you get so defensive whenever somebody shows your inconsistencies. It's because we're afraid of the truth. But we must understand that Jesus is not afraid of it like we are. This brings us to our last point. It's not a long point, but it's the most important point this morning. Why isn't Jesus afraid of our defilement? It's because Jesus seeks the defiled. He wants to, to take the defiled and make them clean. If you're not a Christian this morning, this may be a very strange thought, but it's at the heart of our faith. I encourage you to dwell on what I'm about to say next. Most religions and philosophies in the world are wise enough to realize that if there is a God, 
He's clean. He, he's holy. He's pure. At least a lot purer than we are. There's, there's probably a big gulf there. Yet, only the Bible tells us that this holy, wonderful, pure God came down and became a man to step into our muck, our ick. Took on flesh that would be mutilated and harmed and smeared. He came to take our defilement onto himself. See, Jesus didn't come to be some teacher who just taught us a new way of coping with the pains in this life. No, no positive thoughts. That's not what Jesus is up to. Jesus is not interested in keeping your inner peace during a, a stormy time. No, Jesus came to wash you clean. To make your heart pure. Like, we can wash our hands all day long, but we cannot wash our hearts. So how does Jesus do it? Well, he actually doesn't say in this story, not explicitly. That's because this story's not done yet. We have to follow it all the, way, all the way to the end of the book, to the end of his gospel, to the cross where he died, hanging there, covered in the sins of his people. He who knew no sin became sin, became defiled so that all the defiled people of the world could become clean, the very righteousness of God. That's what smart people call the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, because he was judged. He fell under the penalty of the law for people who had broken it. And we see hints of that in this passage. See, Mark nestles this story in between two other stories. That's how Mark writes his gospel, by the way. Uh, and the, the first story we read earlier, it was that image I asked to burn into your minds. All those grubby, defiled hands reaching out to touch Jesus, and they're he healed. And then last week, if you were here, you heard Daniel Avitan preach on the story of that Syrophoenician woman. That, that woman that Jesus shockingly referred to as a dog. Uh, not not to, to shame her, but to show her that he wanted to lift her from the lowest place and, and make her royalty. Like how he wants to give us dirty people like a, a shining bright wedding dress and invite us into his family. That's where Mark puts the story. If you've read the Gospels, you know that the night before Jesus died, he washed his disciples' feet. And he had a towel wrapped around his waist. And he washed their feet and he dried them with that towel taking their grime and defilement onto himself. Jesus has come for you too. You don't have to fear the truth about yourself. You don't have to fear what lies beneath. He's not afraid. He looks into your heart and he sees your sin. He sees your sin. He says, mine. He sees your sexual history. And he says, I'm taking that. That's mine. He sees your slander. He says, mine. He sees your theft. And he says, mine. He sees all those things that you want to hide. He says, mine. And because he did that, this holy, holy God 
looks at you. When he looks at you, he sees the heart of Christ pure. And he says, yours. This is yours now. You are clean. It's okay. He's not afraid. He came for you. So reach out. Reach out with dirty hands. Touch him. Touch Jesus. Let us pray. Jesus, you have shaken us. You frightened us with the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. Let the comfort of your cleansing love confuse us and give us great joy that we might love you humbly forever. Amen.